0: Jeremiah, chapter 22. It's a fairly long chapter. It's the end of Jeremiah's ninth sermon. It says, thus says the Lord. Go down to the house of the king of Judah and there speak this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit On the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. And I suspect he means the gates of the palace. In verse 3, it says, Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you indeed do this thing, then you shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become... desolation for thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah. You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Yet I surely will make you a wilderness cities, which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you. Everyone with his weapons, they shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. And many nations will pass by this city and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done this to this great city? Then they will answer because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord, their God and worshiped other gods and served them. In chapter 21, the armies of Babylon have surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they are knocking at the door and they are threatening annihilation and extinction. Zedekiah, in chapter 21, asks Jeremiah to pray for the nation and to pray for the city that somehow, miraculously, God will deliver them. And Jeremiah refuses and he issues a warning to the king and to the people he reminds them that repeated disobedience has brought god's judgment and jeremiah encourages the people in chapter 21 to choose between life and death in chapter 21 to stay in jerusalem will mean death he says in verses 8-10 through 10 in chapter 21, to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar is going to provide life. Jeremiah, like Nathan the prophet, was called to confront the kings of Judah face-to-face face with a word from God. Unlike King David, the kings of Judah refuse to hear Jeremiah, and they refuse to repent. And so the messages are short but powerful. The message to Zedekiah, you won't be able to escape judgment. The message to King Shalom or Jehoiaz, you are condemned to die in exile in utter hopelessness in in chapter 22, verses 10-12. through The message to King Jehoiakim, you are condemned because of persistent evil but most particularly because of covetousness and greed, we're going to find out in verses 13 through 23. And then the message to Jehoiachin or Kaniah, you are rejected by God. That's verses 21 through 30. So again, in verse one, thus says the Lord, go down to the house of the king of Judah And there speak this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, O King of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. Thus says the Lord. Execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. You need to understand something. Judah and Jerusalem are what's called a theocracy. The king is responsible for justice. And for righteousness. And so now the prophet says to the king that personal justice and personal purity matter. It was the king's responsibility to execute judgment and to ensure righteousness and to deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. It was the king's job to establish justice. It was the king's job to communicate the commandments of God and the moral force or the moral law of God. And it says in verse four, for if you indeed do this thing, then you shall enter the gates of the house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. You'll remember that God had made a promise to David in perpetuity that not a single person would leave the throne of of David if they would keep the covenant, if they would obey God. And so in verse four and in verse five, he says, but if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. What do you suppose it means when in the Bible, God swears by himself? He swears by himself because there is no power, there is no authority, there's nothing greater than God Himself. And so the moment that He says, I swear by myself, He is making the most extreme covenant and the most extreme oath possible. This is not just simply a warning, it is a promise. R.K. Harrison writes, He is maintaining his rights, that's God, as the initiator of the covenant relationship. He's maintaining his rights to maintain the covenant or to discontinue the covenant on the basis of their failure to obey. In verse 6 it says, For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me. One of the reasons why I think he's using that expression is Gilead was a vast forest at that time. Imagine a lush forest with unbelievable resources. The head of Lebanon, yet I surely will make you a wilderness, cities which are not inhabited. In other words, the contrast is between having a whole lot and having very little. When he speaks of Gilead and he speaks of Lebanon, he speaks of the sources, if you will, of resources that make for a broad economy. And so in verse 7, he says, I will prepare destroyers against you. Everyone with his weapons, they shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. After David was no longer the king, Solomon became the king. And Solomon entered into a pact with the king of Lebanon. And they cut down the cedars of Lebanon. And they imported them to Jerusalem. And there was a palace that was built. In verse 28, it says, And many nations will pass by this city. And everyone will say to his neighbor, Why has the Lord done this to this great city? In other words, this plush, lush, incredibly gifted and, and rich place is going to become an utter desolation. I've told you this on more than one occasions that one of the, my immediate uh, responses when I went to Ground Zero after the destruction of the Twin Towers, here were these two magnificent buildings on 15 acres worth billions of dollars in a matter of moments became a heaping, smoldering pile of trash. It's hard for us to imagine how something so rich and so beautiful and so so amazingly incredible could become destroyed so quickly. And so that's the idea. In verse 9 it says, Then they will answer because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. In other words, God was going to give a reminder. And the reminder would be, There's a reason why God has allowed this judgment to take place. There's a reason why God has allowed the catastrophe to take place because the children of Israel had entered into a promise with God and they had failed to keep their promise. They had entered into a covenant to worship God and refused to worship God. As a matter of fact, what they did is they embraced the pagan idolatry of their neighbors. And so he's been speaking to Zedekiah... In verses 1 through 9, and now he's going to address Shalom, or Jehoiaz. This is Judah's 17th king in verses 10 through 12. And it says in verse 10, Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan them. Weep bitterly for him who goes away. For he shall return no more, nor see his native country. The conversation switches to Zedekiah, to Shalom. He is the king who succeeded his father, Josiah. Josiah was killed at Megiddo in the battle against Pharaoh Necho. Remember, the Assyrians and the Babylonians to the north and the Egyptians to the south were constantly fighting over this particular area, the promised land. It becomes a type and a picture of the battle that wages in the life of the believer, if you will. We have the world and we have our flesh. And guess who is the battleground? You. You're the battleground. The world is constantly trying to draw you away. Your flesh is constantly trying to draw you away. When Josiah was killed, Shalom will reign for about three months. He is one of the kings of Josiah. Josiah. But Shalom will be carried off to Egypt. And so the people, in fact, are instructed to not mourn for Josiah. Josiah was a good king, but rather to mourn for Shalom. Jeremiah predicts the king will be taken into exile and he'll never come back. And by the way, that's exactly what will happen. In verse 11, it says, Thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place. Here's the prophecy. He shall not return here anymore, verse 12, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive and shall see this land no more. From the time of David, who was, well, Saul was the first king of Israel. David is the first king Of both Israel and Judah, he is the commendable king, if you will. But from the time of Saul and David to Solomon, for hundreds of years, not a single king of Judah was displaced off the throne. This person will become the first person who will be forced to leave his position of authority and rule and he'll be sent into exile, never to return. Pharaoh Necho appointed Shalom, and then removed him and carried him away. Here's the idea. Egypt is a type and a picture of the world. The world, not God, made him the ruler. And so guess what? If the world lifts you up, can the world take your position away from you? But if God gives you a position, who can take the position away? Only God. God. And so this becomes a type and a picture, if you will, of a persistent rebellion that's going to result in exile. What is the consequences of persistent rebellion? You're going to be removed from your position and you're going to be placed in a position where you don't want to be exiled. And that becomes part of the point. Shalom or the followers of Jehoiás would live in permanent exile from the promised land, enslaved and hopeless. And this is one of the key concepts. Hopelessness is one of the consequences of persistent and willful rebellion against God. Have you ever been in a position where you thought all hope was gone? that there was this emptiness that welled up inside of you and you were hard-pressed to hold on to hope. Here's the idea. Persistent rejection of God, persistent willful disobedience to the Lord, willful persistent rejection for the unbeliever will result in eternal separation. It will result in exile and the exile isn't just simply to live a life apart from God in this world. It will mean to live a life apart from God in the next world. For the unbeliever and the make-believer, our sin and our rebellion against God carries with it this incredible spiritual sentence. Separation from God. Condemnation by God. And so this is why... The New Testament says there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no judicial pronouncement of guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the person who has offered both their sin and their rebellion to God and said, you know what? I know that the only way that I'm going to be accepted by God is on the basis that God has provided the person of Jesus Christ. There's no more separation. There's redemption and reconciliation. And so now the focus is going to turn in this parade of bad kings to Jehoiakim in verse 13 through 23. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 13, it says, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. When Jeremiah addresses King Jehoiakim, he's going to issue nine charges against him. The prophet reminds the wicked, oppressive, covetous, idolater Jehoiakim of his future. This king built his palace with forced labor and heavy taxes. We know that from 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 35. When Jehoiakim became king, guess what he did? He said... I'm going to be the greatest king who ever lived. And I'm going to live in the greatest palace that has ever been built. Who's going to pay for this? You are. And so he oppressed the people and taxed the people. And then he even enslaved some of the people and he made them work for no wages. Now, you have to understand something again. Jehoiakim, like his brother, was the son of a godly king. His father again was Josiah. Yet Jehoiakim was corrupt and wholly given over to evil. So he has this father who is a father who initiates change and reform. But he's corrupt. He's cruel. He's dictatorial. And he bitterly opposes Jeremiah. He opposes the prophet of God. He opposes the word of God. And the Charges that are against him begin to reveal something about his character and his conduct. It's wholly depraved. In verse 14, it says, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Vermilion is a a word that was used in the ancient culture to describe lavish colors purples and reds that could only be obtained through exotic dyes in verse 15 shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar did your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness then it is well with him there's a contrast in a comparison do you think you get to be king because you live in the biggest house and you have the most resources remember what the new testament says What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Is it possible to have billions and billions of dollars and be unhappy? Is it possible to have all that this world covets and requires, yet there's an emptiness and a darkness inside of you? He says, did your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. There's the contrast and the comparison. The prophet Jeremiah is contrasting the reign of Jehoiakim with his father, Josiah. And he's saying, look at what your father did. And look at what you're doing. The king lived in a lavish mansion decorated with the cedars of Lebanon. He contrasts this with the humble reign of his father. In verse 16, it says he judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me, says the Lord. I want you to pay close attention to verse 16. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Was not this knowing me? For, the, for one of the very first times in the Scripture we begin to understand something. There's a relationship between social justice, moral purity, and real worship of God. This is God speaking. In other words, the reality of who you are and what you believe is really going to be indicated by what you do with the people who are around you who are less fortunate than you. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Was not this knowing me. Here's the idea. That a true understanding, a true friendship, a true relationship with the God, with the true and the living God, is a sensitivity and a compassion for those who are less fortunate. In verse 17, it says, Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness. Now, remember what that word means. The word covetous means greedy. It means wanting more and more of what you already have enough of. Yet your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness. In other words, he began to look at all of the resources, the human beings and everything around him as a source of self-satisfaction. So what are the charges? There are nine. Listen, number one... The king used forced labor to build his palace. Number two, the king was unjust, disobedient, refusing to pay wages to the people who worked for him. That's verse 13. Number three, the king was covetous and greedy in verse 14. He desired a palace with large, spacious rooms, huge windows made from the finest materials, the most expensive cedar paneling, the most gorgeous decoration. So here's the idea. He wanted a personal dwelling, more lavish, more extravagant, more pl- than anyone else. And he was looking to build perhaps the most beautiful palace that had ever been built. And number four, he was self-serving, totally vain, totally different from his godly father, Josiah. Josiah lived a life of righteousness and justice. And here's the point. Righteousness, justice, personal purity... Became the characteristics of great leadership. Great leadership. Remember what we've already talked about. Great leaders don't inflict pain. They bear pain. Great leaders identify with people. This is why Jesus is perhaps the greatest leader, remember? He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will shelter them in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom. And so, number five, he failed to defend or protect the poor like his father. Number six, he didn't know the Lord. He failed to commit himself to the Lord. He failed to obey the Lord. He failed to listen to the Lord and he failed to read the word of God. He failed to listen to the servant of God. And one of the consequences of living a life of obedience to God and to God's word is that something happens inside of you. Where you change, where you live differently and righteously. And so here's part of the admonition. The admonition is if you had really changed in your mind and in your thinking and in your living and in your leadership, then the needs of the poor and the needs of the needy, as well as the needs of the noble and the wealthy, would have been satisfied. And number seven, he failed to control the ever-growing lust in his own heart, the greed in his own heart that drove him to want more and more of what he already had enough of. Even if that meant that he had to stoop to underhanded tactics and obtain things illegally and dishonestly. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. It's one thing to be rich and it's a it's another thing to be want to to be so rich that you're willing to commit crimes in order to increase your wealth. I couldn't help but remembering um, Steve Jobs. Before he died, one of the great things that he had a great disgust for was Google. He accused Google of stealing his ideas and products. And Google said, we'll pay you a billion dollars if you just let this go. And he goes, I have a billion dollars. I don't need another billion dollars. What I need you to do is to stop stealing my stuff and come up with your own stuff. For this king, it wasn't good enough that he had so much. He had to hurt other people in order to get more. And that's number eight. The wicked king was guilty of murder, of shedding innocent blood, which becomes, again, the height, the very definition of injustice. What is more wicked? What is more perverse? What is more disgusting? What is more vile than to kill the innocent? There's nothing. Few things can be said to exceed the wicked behavior of people who kill the innocent. And by the way, an example of this brutality and injustice is seen in the execution of a prophet named Uriah. We're going to see that in chapter 26, verses 20 uh, through 23. If you just turn the page in your Bible from chapter uh, 22 to chapter 26 and just look very quickly... At uh, verse twenty, it says, "Now there was also a man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah of Kiryat Kiryat Yerim, who prophesied against this city and against this land, and according to all the words of Jeremiah. And when Jehoiakim the king, with all his mighty men and all the princes, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard it, he was afraid and fled." And went to Egypt, verse 22, then Jehoiakim the king sent men to Egypt, El-Natan, the son of Ahbor and the other men who went with him to Egypt, and they brought Uriah from Egypt, and they brought him to Jehoiakim the king who killed him with the sword and cast his dead body into the graves of the common people. Think about that. He not only hated him, when the guy tried some peace and safety to get away, he actually saw, He went out of his way. He went out of his way to kill him. And then number nine, the wicked king was guilty of oppression and extortion. And look at verse 18. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. They shall not lament for him saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. Here's the idea. Everyone will be glad when this guy is dead. In verse 19, he shall be buried with the burial of a donkey, dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. Here's the idea. When you're a king, you normally get a king's funeral. Jehoiakim, he's going to be denied a royal funeral. The king's body is going to be thrown onto the garbage heap. That's what it means for the burial of a donkey. In the ancient world of Israel, when a donkey died, their dead carcass was dragged outside the city and it was thrown on top of a garbage heap and left to rot. And here's Jeremiah's prophecy. That's what's going to happen to you. Your wickedness and your greediness and your covetousness is going to catch up with you. The horrible, wicked, corrupt king would be condemned. No one would mourn for him when he died. He would be abandoned by his friends. He would be ignored by his allies. He would be crushed by Babylon. Look at verse 20. Go up to Lebanon... In this particular instance, in verse 20, it's not the country Lebanon, which is just north of Judah. But here, I think what it means, it's a reference to the palace. There were different precincts within the palace. There was a main room and there was a larger room. Just like in Washington, D.C., you've probably heard of the Oval Office and you've heard of the Lincoln Bedroom. And you've heard the different names that they give to the different parts of the uh, of the mansion. In this particular instance, I think what it is, it's a reference to the cedar-paneled receiving rooms of the king. It says, And lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry from Abarim. For all your lovers are destroyed. Here's the idea. All of the allies and all of the supporters... All of the people who were on Jehoiakim's side ignore him, deny him, and abandon him. Time and time again, the prophet Jeremiah warned the king. Here's the warning. You know the message. If you've been here for the first 21 chapters, stop sinning, repent, turn from your sin. Stop sinning, repent, turn from your sin. Time and time again, here's what Jeremiah said. I need you to trust the Lord. I need you to trust the Lord. I need you to turn from your sin, and I need you to trust the Lord. Trust Him, trust Him. Jehoiakim goes, no. I'm going to trust my neighbors to the north. I'm going to trust my neighbors to the south. I'm going to trust my neighbors to the east. I'm going to trust my neighbors to the west. It could very well be that the Lord asks you. I need you to trust me. No, I'm going to trust my job. I'm going to trust the economy. Good luck with that. I'm going to trust this. I'm going to trust that. I'm going to put my trust in my family, my friends, the economy, the circumstances. I'm going to trust anything or anyone other than God. I'm going to trust my mind. I'm going to trust science. And the Lord's going, I need you to trust me. The king chose to disobey God. And he chose to ignore and reject God's word. And the day of judgment would come. And I need need to ask you a question. And I really want you to think long and hard about the question that I'm about to ask you. When the day of judgment came for this king, do you think he was shocked and surprised? What do you think the answer is? He was still shocked and surprised. That's the right answer. The right answer is, you mean everything that you told me, Jeremiah, is true? You know, it's interesting. I think that for many people who have found themselves in church and they've heard the preacher preach the same message. you know what? Jesus Christ is the Lord. Your sins can be forgiven. Heaven is a real place. Heaven is a real place filled with glory and grace. I'm going to see the Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. Hallelujah. Heaven is a wonderful place. Heaven is a real place. And there are going to be people who go to this place. And hell is also a real place. There's a place of judgment and there's a place of condemnation. In verse 21, it says, I spoke to you in your prosperity. But you said, I don't want to hear it. When did the prophet speak to him? It's when he's on the throne. It's when he has what seems like unlimited resources. He's living in a beautiful mansion. He has servants. He has power. He has authority. He has dignity. He has everything going for him. He said, but I don't want to hear what you have to say. Uh, This has been your manner from your youth that you did not obey my voice. In other words, for the king, it wasn't. Think about it. Jeremiah comes to him when he's a young man. Please turn from your sin and accept the Lord. No. He turns him to a, a more mature man. Please turn to the Lord. Please repent of your sin and turn to the Lord. No. He speaks to him in his maturity. Turn to the Lord. No. He speaks to him when he's right on the precipice of judgment. No. In verse 22, the wind shall eat up all your rulers and your lovers shall go into captivity. Surely then you will be ashamed and humiliated for all your wickedness. O inhabitant of Lebanon. That's the palace making your nest in the cedars. That's his cedar lined mansion. How gracious will you be when pangs come upon you like the pain of a woman in labor? Do you understand what he's saying? You're living in your palace, and all of a sudden you're going. To, and no offense to ladies, he's going to begin to squeal like a like a girl. He's going to be crying. But what? How is he going to cry? He's going to cry and groan like a woman in labor. How many of you have heard a woman groan in labor? Many of you. What does it sound like? Do you think it's like this? (laughs) No, that's not how it goes, is it? That's not how a woman in labor groans and cries and screams. It's where they look at you and they go, I'm going to kill you. I remember when we were having our kids, the doctor said, my doctor was from India. And he goes, Mr. Teresa, pay no attention to what she's about to say. She's crazy out of her mind with pain right now. You cannot hold it against her, what she's about to say. That's what he says. You're going to cry like a girl. You're going to squeal like a woman who's giving ready to give birth to a child. He's going to suffer God's judgment because greed selfishness covetousness he neglected the poor greed is a horrible sin it will consume your heart as a matter of fact the scriptures equate greed with idolatry and for a good reason the fundamental meaning of idolatry is that when we set it in our hearts, our affections, our resources, anything other than God, that's greed and idolatry. Greed and idolatry is anything that takes the place of supremacy of God in your life. I want to be this or I want to be that or I want to have this or I want to have that. The mark of greatness isn't the accumulation of stuff, but rather Your character and service. This is why God warns against greed. And there's a powerful, powerful alternative to greed. We call it gratitude. It's what we're supposed to be celebrating tomorrow. But hopefully, if we're Christians, we celebrate it every single day. What do you have to be grateful for? How are you going to celebrate Thanksgiving? Are you grateful for answered prayers? Are you grateful for the favor of God who blesses you? Are you grateful for material blessings and spiritual blessings and special help? Are you grateful for God's goodness? Are you grateful for His faithful love? Are you grateful for victory in Christ? Are you grateful for God's faithfulness? Are you grateful for God's immeasurable love? Are you grateful for His amazing grace? Are you grateful for salvation? Are you grateful that you know Jesus? Are you grateful for His redemptive plan? Are you grateful for your brothers and sisters, your fellow believers who pray for you and minister to you and encourage you? Are you grateful for the suffering servants who are suffering at this very moment, imprisoned? Are you grateful for the knowledge and growth and maturity that comes from recognizing your failure and mistakes? Are you grateful for God's commitment to cultivate a godly character in your life? What are you grateful for? Because guess what? In direct proportion to your gratitude and thanksgiving, guess what? Greed starts to shrink. Somebody gave me a note this week. And I was hoping I would have an opportunity to read it to you. It's anonymous. He said, long ago, even before I became a believer, I heard a a little poem that has guided my giving for many years. Quote, what? Giving again, I ask in dismay, must I keep giving and giving away? No, said the angel looking me through you may stop giving when the master stops giving to you he said every time i let a greedy self-serving streak impede giving this poem rings in my ears He wrote me, he said, when you mentioned the church budget issues, you said something about dividing the sorrow so that we can share the blessings or something to that end. He said, in this economy, I see the opportunity for the church to minister growing and the resources shrinking. My hope is that all those who are able will give of their riches and their time and their labors. He said, granted from an open hand, things can be taken that may be preserved in a clenched fist. But in an open hand, much can be placed that will be lost on a clenched fist. My prayer is that each member who hears this will search themselves for what they might give in this season of great need and extend an open hand. He writes, my prayer is that God will bless Calvary South Denver and that Calvary South Denver will be a blessing to God. And then he writes Thank you for your daily radio ministry and the free online access you provide to teaching on your church website. He says they are great blessings. What a word of encouragement. We want to be a blessing. Ha. And then he closes with Jehoiachin or Kanaya in verse 24. Look what it says. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the hand of the Chaldeans. Jeremiah is going to issue a twofold prophecy directed at this evil ruler. By the way, he's the 19th king. He says, you and your mom are going to be taken away. He says, so I will cast you out in verse 26 and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there shall they shall not return. In verse 24, when it says, As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck him off. Caniah is Jehoiachin. He's listed here and in chapter 37, verse 1. He's also called Jeconiah in chapter 24, verse 1. Chapter 27, verse 30. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 27. He has been given a birth name and he's been given a regal name or a name by which to rule. And when he speaks of the signet ring, these were symbols of power and authority. They were highly prized. They were of immense value. The signet ring on the hand of a king, how often do you suppose it was removed? Never is the right answer. Never. Because the person who wielded that ring, when he pressed the ring on a divine edict, his wishes became the law. They were immensely valuable. And so when the Lord says, even if you were the signet on my right hand, I would still take you off. What do you suppose that means? I I hope you begin to understand it's the idea that no matter how valuable, no matter how important, no matter how powerful, no matter how authoritative, in taking off this ring, the Lord Jehovah rejects this man's leadership. And here's the idea. The Lord God cannot remain in fellowship with the rebellious sinner, since implicit obedience to him is absolutely necessary for fellowship. And if we look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I know that we've quoted it quite a bit in our study of Jeremiah. And Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, it says this. For you have need of Endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Here's the idea. In order to have real... Friendship and fellowship with God. There needs to be a life of moral purity and personal purity. The Bible says that sin separates us from God. It creates a mechanism, a disconnect, if you will. And in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 25, it says, And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who face you you, you fear the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans, who are, is the province. In verse 26, so I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born. And there you will die. He's the puppet king. And he's going to be exiled to Babylon along with his mother. And by the way, his mother's name is Nehoshta. We learn that in Second Kings chapter 24, verses 6, 8, and 15. So they are plucked up. They're taken away to Babylon. In verse 27 it says, But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. I want to be king. Of course you do. I want to go home. Of course you do. I want to be what I was always intended to be. The son of David ruling on my father's throne. Of course that's what you want. But he was a puppet king. And a wicked king who dishonored God and who disobeyed God. And it says in verse 28 Is this man Kenya a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? Do you understand what's happening? God had made a promise to David. Every person who sits on the throne, so long as you obey God, you will sit on the throne, but Coniah is going to be the last king of Judah. He is the last king before the Messiah. And so, in verse 29, it says, O earth! Earth, earth, hear the word of the Lord. In the Hebrew language, the word is edits. It could be translated land, 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 or earth, earth, earth. It could, even in this context, Mean the inheritance, the inheritance, the inheritance. And when something is repeated over and over again, the idea is to draw special attention to it. And so when it says land, 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 or earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord, the implication seems to be. that the nation itself is called upon to hear the promises of God and the prophecies that are given by the prophet. In verse 30, it says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days, for none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Some people have read this and said, Well, Jeremiah made a mistake. He issued a false prophecy. Because we know that Caniah did have children. As a matter of fact, we know that he had seven sons in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. Verses 17 and 18. So what does this mean? The prophecy doesn't mean that the king won't have any children. It means that his offspring are forbidden to sit on the throne of David. And none of them will. His children will die. Babylon. His great, great grandchild will return to Jerusalem during the time of Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah. His name is Zerubbabel, but he won't sit on his father's throne. The descendants of Caniah are forbidden to sit on the throne of David. Nebuchadnezzar would place Zedekiah, who was his uncle. On the throne, but no king from the line of David would sit on the throne again until the coming of the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus, who's called the son of David. And so this prophecy has messianic implications. The right of Jesus to the throne of David will come through his foster father, Joseph. And do you realize according to Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 verse 12 and in Matthew chapter 1 verse 16, did you know that Joseph was a direct descendant of Kaniah? Mary is a daughter of David. Joseph is a son of David. Joseph's lineage can be traced through Kaniah. Mary's through Nathan. The physical descent of Jesus comes through Mary, whose genealogy is traced through Nathan, Solomon, David. If Joseph had been the biological father of Jesus, he wouldn't be able to occupy his father's throne. And Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and 33 would contradict the prophecy. And so this has incredible Prophetic implications. How is God going to fulfill his promise for the Messiah to be the son of David? And yet, how does he get around this curse? Jesus has to be born of a virgin and not have a biological father. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary. And so the promise is kept. And the curse is intact. And in the last days of human history. The future. Messiah. Jesus will return. And he will establish God's kingdom on the earth. And he will one day reign from the holy city of Jerusalem. And he'll fulfill the promise. If the chapter says anything at all, it says this. You can't turn from the Lord and you can't forsake the Lord and you can't live a life of sinful rebellion and not expect there to be consequences. But over and over again, we're given this wonderful, wonderful opportunity. That we can turn from our sin. That we can embrace the Lord. That we can take advantage of His grace and His mercy. Because guess what? God's made a prophecy concerning you. Paul wrote about it in the book of Romans chapter 8. He said, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestine to be conformed into the image of His Son. That prophecy was given for you because this is the promise of God. For those of you who know Jesus and love Jesus The Holy Spirit is hard at work inside of your heart, molding you and shaping you so that your character will reflect the character of Christ, so that you will walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, so that you'll fulfill the plans and the purposes that God has for you. That's the end of Jeremiah's ninth sermon. When we come back together, we'll begin the tenth sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time. Thank You for the Word of God. Lord, You are at work. In what seems like an impossible situation, You're able to overcome it. How can we break the curse of the law? And how can we break the curse of sin? And how can we break the curse that the soul that sins it shall surely die? Lord, we thank You. That the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. That Lord, in our own circumstance, that we should face the awful punishment of judgment, but that Lord, you've sent Jesus Christ the Lord to die for us so that we could experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope. And so, Lord, again, we thank you that the Messiah really would be the son of David. And that supernaturally you're going to make a provision in order to avoid the curse. You're going to overshadow a young virgin and she's going to bring forth a child. And you said that he would be called Emmanuel. God with us. Lord, we are so grateful that we have a Savior And again, Father, we pray that you will remind our hearts of the mercy and the peace that's available through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand.